Welcome to Aspen Insight. I'm Zach St. Louis. And I'm Marcy Krivenin. Three months after Hurricane Maria made landfall in Puerto Rico, American citizens continue to face life-threatening hardships there. Maria was the first Category 4 hurricane to pummel the island since 1932. 30 inches of rain fell in one day in some areas. Still, many are without power, and there are questions about how many people died in the storm. The official death count is 64. One of our colleagues, Abigail Golden Vasquez, knows this firsthand. Because of the power blackout, her aunt faced a life-threatening situation. Abigail runs the Aspen Institute Latinos in Society program, and we talked to her in November about her family's experience in the weeks and months since the hurricane first hit, as well as her view on what the U.S. government should do for Puerto Rico. Abigail recently published this personal story on the Institute's blog, and Matt Connolly, our digital editor, worked with Abigail on publishing her piece, and he's here with me in the studio now. Thanks for being here, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. So we're going to hear the interview you did with Abigail, but first, I thought you could give us a little overview of why you think this was the right piece for the Institute to do and why Abigail was the right person for it. She's the right person for it because she had this personal connection. She has family down there. And as you'll hear soon, and as you'll know if you read the piece, she went to great lengths to make sure that that family was uh, safe and protected. I heard her telling her story uh, to colleagues just talking about what she'd been going through. And I jumped at the chance to have her put that on our website. We, by nature of our work, often end up publishing a lot of very policy-heavy pieces. And whenever we get the opportunity to take something that's more personal, that connects to people at a more visceral level, uh, we've got to take it. And I always really cherish when I get to work on stories like that. That sounds great. And I think we're all looking forward to hearing this. So let's hear your interview with Abigail Golden Vasquez. Uh, Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Matt. You wrote a blog post for us about Hurricane Maria and uh, why we should be paying attention to Puerto Rico, even a month or more out. And you had some uh, personal experiences with family there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, certainly. So um, now we're well over a month out. We're beyond two months out. And um, the urgency is almost as severe as it was just days after the actual incident. It took about two weeks um, following when Hurricane Maria hit the island for me to even be able to communicate with any of my family members there. And it was actually pretty frustrating even just to be here because um, the first three, four days, it wasn't even really being covered, certainly not on uh, mainstream national stations. So I was searching Univision and... Um, Telemundo and all of the Spanish stations just to try to get any news at all. And they were able to cover some of it. So it was hard to get any information at all. So obviously, that was pretty stressful. I have um, aunts, I have cousins, um, close family members that I visit with every single year, and I had no idea how they were doing. Um, I still to this day can't make a phone call to talk to them on the phone there. So we were able to communicate um, largely using Messenger, Facebook Messenger, and occasionally posts on Facebook. So they were able to get very slow connections. And I found out that actually their homes were okay, um, but they were without electricity, they were running low on potable water. And um, a most critical issue was my aunt, who requires dialysis three times a week, was unable to get the dialysis that she needed. 
So that put us into crisis mode of trying to solve her challenge. And how did you end up solving it? Well, it took a lot of time. And really, it's, it's an amazing story, truly, about social media. I could sense that my cousin was getting more and more desperate. She was telling me that my aunt was having her dialysis rationed, which um, she's supposed to get two and a half to three hours of dialysis. And they were rationing it because the dialysis centers were running on diesel. There was a shortage of diesel. And um, so they weren't giving the full amount that she needed. And, you know, obviously that's pretty serious. People who have dialysis get poison in their blood. So she was getting sicker and sicker. She was hospitalized, and um, I finally was able, again, not by telephone, but through text to get through, and I said, what do you need? What can I do for you? And she said, at this point, um, I'm most worried about my mother. First, I started calling FEMA, and I started calling, you know, there's a Puerto Rico helpline and um, leaving messages. I called the island. There was a helpline on the island. There was a helpline in D.C., and I was calling everywhere that I could over a weekend and getting no results, leaving messages. None of my calls return were returned even to this day. And um, so I posted on Facebook asking for help, and I got just a tremendous response to the point I couldn't even keep up with all of the possibilities that people were presenting to me. And one person offered um, an emergency plane that was loading, you know, cargo and taking back people who were sick. But again, it was hard because of the communication to get her to the location that she needed to be at the time that she needed to be there. Um, so it was really complicated to work out, but in the end, I ended up buying a um, a ticket for her. It took about two weeks to get all of it resolved. Um, also coordinating with her dialysis sessions, so she needed dialysis before she could get on a plane, all of that stuff. And um, I sent her to stay with my mother, and she spent a good six weeks with my mother. And how's she doing now? Look, she was pretty traumatized. It was really difficult for her to adjust. She doesn't speak English. Um Portland, Oregon, where my mother lives, was very cold for her, and she missed her family and um, was also worried for everyone on the island. So it was was difficult, but she was able to get the dialysis that she needed to stabilize, to become healthy enough, and um, to go back. Um, It took a while, and, you know, we were apprehensive about sending her back to an island that still is without electricity, that still doesn't have regular potable water, um, that still doesn't have good phone service. Um, But the truth of the matter is it's also it was hard for her to be away from her family. And as soon as the dialysis centers were up and running again, um, and we felt she was in a stable enough position to return her to the island, we did, which was just last week. A lot of what folks like you here at the Aspen Institute work on is policy. This is also very personal. And I know they say that all politics is local, but also to a certain extent, all politics is personal. So what's it like for you to shift, um, kind of shift gears from this bird's eye view to this kind of here I am in the middle of it, here I am in the middle of you know, what's going wrong, trying to decide how to fix it. Well, you're very right to say that it gets very personal. And um, and I'll share something that I didn't share in the article and I haven't shared with a lot of people. And for the first time, I actually felt what it must feel like when you believe your government doesn't really care what happens to you. And um, that's how my family feels, and that's how I feel. It's really hard to reconcile how we are so far out now. We are over two months out and um, so far from really even having a, a bit of normalcy. And some of this certainly is because of the conditions that existed before Hurricane Maria hit. But to see how far back we are, I mean, 
Puerto Rico, beautiful island, one of the most you know developed islands, part of the United States, an island full of U.S. citizens. And to see that people are still dying because the help they need is not there is truly heartbreaking. Why do you think that the government and to a certain extent the American people haven't responded to Maria that the way that they did to Sandy, to Katrina? Well, it's really hard to say for sure. I can surmise that part of it is is it's an island, it's far away. I don't think that many American citizens even truly realize that um, Puerto Rico is full of American citizens, that we are American citizens. I think that's one part of it. We can think about things like it's a protectorate, it's a territory, it's not treated in, with an equal status to, you know, it's not a state. We don't have um, represent, voting representation in Congress. So you're talking about a disenfranchised group when, you know, there's not the same priority to meet their needs that one might have um, for Houston or for Florida. So I've got a two-part question for you. What does Puerto Rico need right now? Uh, what does it need from the government? And what do you think it needs from everyday Americans who might be listening to this podcast right now? So first and foremost, we need to keep attention on Puerto Rico and the situation of Puerto Ricans right now. Um, it's going to be very easy in the various news cycles to just forget what's going on there. That's part one. Part two, there was um, disaster assistance that was apportioned to Houston, Florida, and Puerto Rico, if I'm not mistaken, in the tune of $70 million. There's no apportionment that's specific to Puerto Rico. So we have no idea how much Puerto Rico is actually going to get. Um, we know that it needs billions. Obviously, the electrical, the infrastructure, temporary homes, roofs, students are still not in school. Children are, are schools are still serving as shelters. So um, where I would argue that Houston and Florida are becoming normalized, Puerto Rico is so far from close to that. So they're still in the disaster and emergency assistance phase. Puerto Rico needs to be built better. It needs to be rebuilt, reconstructed better than it started um, so that the next time something like this happens, the devastation is not so severe. Another thing that needs to happen is removal of the Jones Act, which um, requires that goods between ports in the U.S. are carried on U.S. ships. So that prevents um, competition and it prevents um, goods from going back and forth and increases costs unnecessarily. And so we need an immediate suspension of the Jones Act. And then there's another big issue that's on the horizon is that in the latest um, budget proposal, there's a proposal of a 20% tax on goods produced outside of the country. And so Puerto Rico is an island, it's a territory of American citizens, but the concern is that they will be considered part of a foreign as a foreign country. And that would devastate the economy of Puerto Rico, which is already devastated. And that could be a final blow. So um, that is something that I think has gone a little bit under the radar and is pretty important to pay attention to. Is there anything else that you didn't touch on in the piece that you want to make sure listeners know? Yes, there is. Thank you for asking, Matt. Um, there is an estimated um, 160,000 Puerto Ricans that since Hurricane Maria have come to just Orlando. That doesn't take into account Puerto Ricans that have gone to other cities and states and the many Puerto Ricans that we know have come on private uh, carriers um, that, that were hired to help people get out. So there are hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans who are newly arrived here. Some don't speak English, have medical needs, have experienced severe trauma, children who need to get into school, 
And so the other piece of this is making sure that we are providing services to take care of the Puerto Rican U.S. American citizens that now live here. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you very much for the opportunity and for your help in um, making this happen. If you want to read more, uh, the pieces after Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico needs more help than ever. Uh, thank you so much, Abigail. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. You can read Abigail's piece and learn more about how you can contribute to relief efforts in Puerto Rico on our website. We'll have more information at aspeninstitute.org slash insight. Another colleague of ours, Eric Liu, begins his latest book with a story about tomato pickers in southwest Florida. Picture a ripe red tomato, the prologue reads. Perhaps there is one in your kitchen. Hold it. Feel its heft. Consider its origins. It's likely migrants from South and Central America picked that tomato. For many years, these workers labored under dreadful conditions, somewhere between indentured servitude and slavery, says Eric. It was just the most brutal kind of abuse, people being chained and penned, um, being abused physically, sexually and otherwise, having their wages stolen or denied. Um, And it was completely off the grid, off the radar screen of not only the media, but most Americans. The workers began to meet and organize after their shifts, creating a newfound power. They challenged the growers, demanding their wages and better working conditions. Uh, By applying that kind of collective, concerted, intentional power Uh, Through the magic act of organizing, uh, they began to change uh, the game. Eric's book is You're More Powerful Than You Think, A Citizen's Guide to Making Change Happen. He uses the tomato picker story to illustrate that anyone can mobilize to change the equation of power. Here's my interview with Eric. He's the director of the Institute's Citizenship and American Identity Program. First, I asked what compelled him to write the book. Well, what really compelled me was the fact that I think we're living through an incredible period of upheaval where all across the United States uh, and indeed all around the world right now, you just have great mass movements of millions of people, everyday citizens pushing back against concentrated, monopolized, abusive power. Um, And that is, uh, again, that, that, that is the through line that runs from the Arab Spring to Occupy Wall Street to the Tea Party to Black Lives Matter to the $15 Now movement, um, to the Dreamers, uh, to the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong, to the Maidan Revolution, to the Green Revolution. All around the world right now, you have people pushing back. Uh, And what led me to write this book was not only because in my work at Aspen and at Citizen University, I interact and uh, learn from and and teach in some ways so many of these activists uh, who are making this change happen right now, uh, but also because all around the world, people realize that there is a gap between simply having that primal scream of I'm not going to take it anymore to then actually knowing how to change the game, actually knowing how to move political systems or economic systems, actually being able to mobilize various sources of power, be it uh, money or people or ideas or social norms to get the change you want. And uh, to close that gap, 
between the primal scream and the actual exercise of effective power, um, I felt like I wanted to codify in a book uh, what I've learned from people and what I know and from my own uh, career and life uh, in politics and citizenship. Uh, and I'm hoping that the book will be useful to them. You know, so why do people in the United States right now need to be reminded that they have power? You know, do people largely feel powerless? I, I think in many ways, yes, people have over the course of the last particularly three, four decades where this country has been uh, crunched, squeezed in this period of intense concentration of wealth, intense radical inequality um, at levels not seen since great, before the Great Depression, um, people have come to internalize a sense that, uh, um, that they are powerless, both economically and civically, and they've come to internalize uh, a belief that things are a zero-sum, scarcity kind of environment. And, uh, uh, and so, you know, but the, the, the reality of, of situations like that, though, is you can only have so many decades of that kind of squeeze and grinding down of people before eventually there will be a great pushback. Um, and that is truly what connects the seemingly ideologically disparate movements that run from the Tea Party to Occupy Wall Street, from the Bernie Sanders campaign to the Donald Trump campaign. Uh, all of these were movements of people who have been uh, indeed crushed by particularly economic forces greater than themselves uh, um, and, and who are deciding in different ways with different ideas uh, to, to push back. And so, um, you know, I, I think while people have felt this way and felt powerless, um, there is an awakening happening right now that I'm feeling all around the country and um, and makes me somewhat optimistic about our ability to rejuvenate the body politic. And, you know, you mentioned in the book that, indeed, the system has been rigged with the upward concentration of wealth and the influence of money on politics. And still, your book is very optimistic. You know, how does one stay upbeat in our current atmosphere and not turn to cynicism? You really named, I think, the biggest enemy. The biggest, you know, sometimes people think apathy is the biggest enemy of, of civic empowerment engagement, but I think it's actually cynicism, uh, which precedes apathy, right? I mean, it's cynicism in the sense that it's so completely corrupted that it's beyond repair is dangerous precisely because it's so self-fulfilling, Right. When I introduce people to my book and, and I say, I, I really want you to believe the title of, of my book. I want you to believe that you're more powerful than you think. Not because in some fairy tale, wishful thinking way that believing makes it so or wishing makes it so, but rather because not believing it becomes rapidly self-fulfilling, right? If you believe you are powerless and think you are powerless and tell yourself a story that you are powerless, you pretty much guarantee that you will be. Simply believing it, as I say, is not sufficient, but it starts with actually changing your frame of mind. And then from there, you can go and identify the ways in which the structure of power has been rigged uh, and identify some of these structural impediments, whether it's the way that trickle-down economics has rigged the game economically for the 1%, uh, or whether it's the structure of our criminal justice system uh, that has made mass incarceration of brown and black men in particular such a kind of default setting uh, for our society today in a way that's completely unjust. You know, whatever the movement might be, um, you can identify these structural impediments and start thinking about how not alone, but in the company of others, you begin to push back against them. But that begins with, in the first place, changing this mindset. And I, I think that matters uh, so much because democracy and the practice of self-government um, is not just about what you can see and feel and touch. It begins in the imagination. Right? And in a weird kind of perverse way, actually, the, uh, the upheaval of the Trump administration in a way that Donald Trump as a leader 
is so blithely, casually disruptive and disrespectful and indeed in some ways threatening toward uh, norms of constitutional democratic self-governance, there's a silver lining to that because what it makes you appreciate is just how completely fragile these norms are and how they're not just about what's on paper about how the Congress works and separation of powers, that any notion of legitimacy uh, in a democratic society begins with our imagination. We imagine systems to be legitimate. We imagine government to be legitimate or not, right? Um, And when we decide they're not, when Black Lives Matter starts deciding that the system of policing this country is not legitimate, um, that's more than just a conversation about reform proposals. That's a conversation about um, until and unless people in power begin to restore affirmatively um, a sense of legitimacy by the way they respect uh, the communities that they're policing, um, then we're not going to be solving our deeper problems, right? All this stuff begins in our mindsets and, and, and in our civic imagination. And last question, my understanding is you've been traveling around the country talking about your book. Um, you know, what are you seeing in these communities that you visit about polarization or divisions among Americans? When you go to, as I've been in recent weeks, you know, Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, or, or Baltimore, or, you know, Portland, Oregon, or, you know, uh, places off the D.C. grid, uh, where people are just trying to live and trying to wrestle with the problems in their community, um, uh, deep economic problems or problems of opioid crises or problems of um, failing or struggling schools, um, you realize that uh, a problem-solving orientation um, is something that you cannot escape when you're in local politics or local civic life, right? In D.C., in, in national politics, you can kind of get away with punting problems down forever down the road and just engaging in talking points wars. Um, but if you live in Scranton, at the end of the day, you either are or are not going to figure out how to bring new businesses into your half-empty mall at Steamtown Mall, right? You either are or are not going to figure out how you capitalize upon the University of Scranton uh, and the hospital there to expand new economic opportunities to bring younger workers uh, into the community. Because it's at the local level that when you practice this, you see and feel the impact. It doesn't take but organizing five people to show up at a school, a school board meeting or at a neighborhood council meeting uh, or at a utilities board meeting to suddenly change policy in your community, right? And to see, wow, I just had an impact there. Um, at the local level all around this country, I am seeing that practice of citizen power. And it's why uh, for all the peril uh, that our constitutional republic is in right now, and I don't want to, uh, I, I'm not naive about this. Uh, I, I'm actually quite um, clear-eyed about the dangers that we face as a nation right now um, in the health of our democracy. Uh, at the same time, I see all of this bottom-up citizen-driven renewal uh, and problem-solving that gives me some measure of hope. Eric Liu, founder of Citizen University, executive director of the Citizenship and American Identity Program at the Aspen Institute, and author of You're More Powerful Than You Think. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Hey, Zach, what are you doing over the holidays? Listening to my favorite podcasts, of course. Well, have you subscribed to Aspen Ideas to Go yet? Of course. It's so interesting to listen to all the Institute's onstage talks. I actually just listened to the one with Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank. He talked about what it takes to be an entrepreneur. I love that one, too. 
For those of you who haven't listened to the show, you'll hear voices like Michelle Obama, Thomas Friedman, Jeff Bezos, and David Brooks. It covers everything from politics and foreign policy to science and health. I subscribed on Apple Podcasts, and you can too. Just take out your phone, open Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app, search for Aspen Ideas to Go, and you'll never miss the next episode. Happy listening. Now let's get back to our show. Here's the rest of Aspen Insight. If you're wondering what to read in the new year, we've got a list for you. Aspen Words, a literary nonprofit and program of the Aspen Institute, released a list of fictional works that are finalists for its new book award. The long list of finalists just came out late last month. The $35,000 Aspen Words Literary Prize recognizes authors who write about contemporary social issues. Here's Executive Director Adrian Brodeur at a bookstore open house in Aspen, Colorado. We have a writer who basically had his work smuggled out of North Korea (laughs) on this list. There is a prisoner serving a life sentence without parole on this list. I mean, it is really an astonishing and varied and rich and vibrant list of books. 20 books made the list, and they cover topics like immigration, inequality, incarceration, climate change, and cultural identity. The list will be narrowed down to five in 2018, and a winner will be announced in April. I sat down with Adrienne Brodeur in our studio. She says these works provide new ways for us to have conversations around issues that are in the daily headlines. Literature provides an entirely different way of discussing social issues in as much as it it expands perspective and builds compassion around issues. And I think that's very different than reading nonfiction or discussing the facts of a situation. So that's why fiction was the target of this particular prize. Exactly. How does this prize, you know, in the world of literary awards, how does this prize fit in? How is this sort of a unique award? Right. There are a lot of literary awards. And when I was doing some research long ago with this idea in mind, I mean, there are a lot of general prizes for works of enduring literary value, such as the Pulitzer Prize and the Man Booker Prize and the National Book Award and so on. And then there are a lot of sort of subsets where there can be prizes um, that are geographically based or um, having to do with the author, debut awards, or for specific or women's prizes and so on. There are very few that are focused on the subject matter. And it is, you know, it's an it's a nuanced and delicate way to focus an award. Our goal is is two prong with this. We want to celebrate works that have enduring literary value, but that also shine a spotlight on a social issue. So 20 novels and short story collections are finalists for the award, and they make up a long list. Um, So this is truly a mix of literature uh, with works from established authors and little-known writers, and the topics are mixed. Can you talk a little bit about the variety of issues that these books address? Yes, Um, especially because I feel like this list exceeded even my very high expectations vis-a-vis what I was hoping for, for this, what the long list could potentially look like. And these 20 titles, and I'm looking at the titles now, they just cover 
the gamut. Um, they address issues including displacement, assimilation, the effects of war, incarceration, economic inequality, the decline of the working class, mental illness, issues surrounding racial and gender inequalities. I mean, I could go on and on, and I'm sure I'm missing some. And and then the other fascinating piece about it, of course, is that the authors are so varied. So yes, we have a Pulitzer Prize winning author in that mix, a National Book Award winning author, and then a whole bunch of debut authors whose name I was not aware of until they were nominated or until their books were published this year. So there were 144 nominated books for the prize, and these were the 20 that rose to the top of that list. Can you talk a little bit more about that anonymous author whose manuscript was smuggled out of North Korea? Well, I can, but I, for the sake of full disclosure, this um, this long list came out two weeks ago, and I have read, I would say, somewhere between a third and half of it, and I have not yet read The Accusation, which I am excited to read. So I'll tell you what I know about the book, which is that is it is a short story collection um, and it is critical to the single state totalitarian regime that is North Korea. And it is written by an author who still resides in that country. So to me, without even having read the book, I mean, that says something about human resiliency and the need to tell our stories. Because what that author is risking in publishing his or her work is extraordinary. I mean, you said you've you've read a certain amount of the mm-hmm. books on the list. Can you talk a little bit about one that you have read that struck you? Well, <laughs> I was actually going to punt on this question. As executive director of Aspen Words, which is the program that's bestowing this prize, I really want to be very cautious about the independence of the judges to judge this prize really well. I don't want to give a nod towards something. So I feel like I might be able to talk about a hypothetical issue that would be described in a novel and why that would feel very different to me to learn about an issue that way than, for example, um, so to talk about the topic rather than the title. So if we were to take the issue of immigration, which is obviously a very compelling issue today, many of these books cover it, many books that have been published this year are on this subject matter. As a reader and thinker and human who is concerned about such issues, I can form my opinion based on lots of facts that I read, you know, the New York Times on the wall, the cost of the wall, or um, the rollback of the Dreamers program, or the new ban on or the proposed ban on immigration. And so these are all ways in which I can form opinions. And then there's this other thing. There's what happens to me when I read a beautiful novel about some particular subject matter. And how that differs is I feel like it takes that intellectual information, those facts, and it pulls it right down into my heart. Because reading is fundamentally an empathetic experience. You are suddenly outside yourself. You are in a character's head. And even if that person's life experiences are not your own. So I have not had the experience of being an immigrant child who might have had to speak one language at school and another at home or worried that my parents were possibly going to be deported. And yet some of those are universal worries, like, you know, the possibility of losing a parent, right? Every Disney movie ever from Bambi to Snow White. I mean, that's the premise. And so we all have that fear. 
So suddenly you're relating to a social cause or a social issue in an entirely different way because you're seeing it through the real emotionally nuanced human realm. Right. I, I mean, and that's maybe the difference between reading a piece of literature and reading a news story. Exactly. Exactly. But they both do something very fundamentally important. And I think that's what I meant by the the brain-heart connection. I mean, they just sort of tickle different parts of your psyche. Wow. No, that's great. You know, when you say create dialogue around important issues, do you envision book clubs or, you know, maybe reading one of the the books on the long list and then talking about it? Or how might those conversations happen communally, you know, from uh, these books? Absolutely. Book clubs, right? I mean, I I don't know if you're, I mean, I try to avoid them at this point in my life because I have so much reading to do anyway, but I'm in one and we're constantly reading books of this sort. Um, Books that are meaningful and that are beautiful and that Yes, that create dialogue around these subject matters. And it's it's always really interesting to hear different people's takes on them. And what I hope is often that the issues come up without it necessarily being as intended or intentional, that, that you're talking about a great work of literature. And in the process, you're being exposed to someone else's life or some other type of situation that you that might be unexpected for you. I mean, we all live in the bubble of our own experience. And the beauty of reading is exploding that bubble, right? Totally. And it's that empathizing that you mentioned yes. earlier, stepping into somebody else's shoes. And I mean, I think that's the most fundamental process of actually writing or reading. I mean, you are creating a world or going and entering a world that is not of your making. And you, I don't think you can do it wholeheartedly, I mean, with the novel and getting involved without becoming part of the story and without becoming attuned to the characters and their plight, which is so fundamentally different from your own. Well, Adrian Brodeur, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Adrian Brodeur is executive director of Aspen Words, a program of the Aspen Institute. Find the long list finalists on our website, aspeninstitute.org insight. Hey, Marcy, isn't NPR Books partnering with Aspen Words in this? So, yeah, they're a media sponsor, so they're spreading the word about the books to their many, many fans. You can find a link to the NPR article about the list with reviews of some of the books on our website. Sounds like I've got some reading to do. Yes, you do. You better get going. All right, I'm on it. That's it for today's episode. If you've been enjoying the show, it would help us out a lot if you rated and reviewed it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to us. And you can send us your thoughts and ideas on Twitter using hashtag Aspen Insight. Aspen Insight is a production of the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Thanks to our colleagues in the Institute's Latinos in Society program, the Citizenship in American Identity program, and Aspen Words. You can find out more about all of the topics discussed in this episode on our website at aspeninstitute.org insight. I'm Marcy Krivenen. And I'm Zach St. Louis. Thanks for listening.